0: Hey, what's
1: up everyone? Welcome back to The Forum, where science comes to socialize. Thanks so much for joining us today for what's bound to be an out-of-this-world episode. But before we get started, my name's Aubrey, and I'm joined today by the usual suspects, Cleo and Daniela.
2: Hi there, I'm Cleo. Let me remind you that if you enjoy today's episode and want to keep the conversation going online, you'll find us on Twitter and Instagram at ISGP Forum, on Facebook by searching for ISGP's The Forum, or
0: on our website at ISGPforum.org. Hey y'all, Daniela here. Definitely reach out to us on social. It's our preferred method of communication. And while you're at it, feel free to help us out by leaving a review on iTunes or Facebook. In today's
1: episode, we'll be diving headfirst into a topic that has captured the imagination of scientists and non-scientists alike for decades. And in the past five or so years, it's had an even bigger resurgence in pop culture, pop science, and pop news media. Today, we'll be discussing the ever-intriguing topic of space exploration.
2: Contributing to our conversation will be Dr. Lynn Rothschild, a senior research scientist at NASA's Ames Research Center. She's also the Research and Technology Lead for NASA Headquarters Space Technology Mission Directorate. We'll hear from
0: her starting in just a few minutes. But first, what's the deal with space anyway? I mean, if research areas were movie characters, space exploration would definitely be Regina George, totally popular in the public eye because people are, well, both fascinated and terrified by it, which only fuels further fascination. That's true. It's
2: no wonder Hollywood has latched onto space as a recurring theme. I mean, with the initial and ongoing popularity of Star Wars and Star Trek to the back to back to back releases of Gravity, Interstellar, and The Martian, our curiosity about space is everywhere. There's even Snoopy and Space on Apple TV now. Great point, and a reason I need to subscribe to yet another streaming service. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, we'll get back to some of these pop culture phenomena in a bit, mostly by way of analogy, but they really do illustrate a powerful point. When asked why society is enamored with space exploration, Dr. Rothschild noted that humankind has always looked into the night sky, observed stars, and wondered if we were alone. It's maybe no surprise then that we have this deeply embedded desire to go beyond Earth and
0: find out what else is out there. Which really speaks to the excitement of the Apollo 11 mission. You know, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind? In July 1969, the crew made up of Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins reached the moon. And, of course, Armstrong became the first person to walk on it. Dr. Rothschild describes the excitement of that feat, which recently celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2019.
3: For those of us who were alive when... Um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin set foot on the moon, it was unbelievably exciting, the idea of a human being stepping on another world. I mean, I'm a huge, huge supporter of robotic missions for their science value, but there is something unbelievably exciting about seeing a human step out on another world. Um, And of course, for the science return, it's tremendously interesting and important to do this exploration. I'm not sure that that's why the the society as a whole is, is there, but to be able to cheer on this peacetime technological feat—that you know really was was an achievement for all mankind. I mean, arguably, arguably the greatest
2: technological achievement ever of humans. And it's not just an exciting thing to do or witness because of its novelty, but also because it represents such a massive overcoming of challenges. Dr. Rothschild explained that she considers there to be two major categories of challenges associated with space travel. The first is fighting gravity to get out of Earth's orbit and beyond.
1: That requires an insane amount of energy and is the reason why so much of the physical rocket structure is comprised of boosters tasked solely with getting the whole apparatus off the surface of the Earth. Something we'll talk about shortly, then, is how it's super beneficial to minimize the number of supplies you have to bring with you, since, you know, things mean more mass and more room, which means even more energy
0: to get off the ground. The second major challenge that Dr. Rothschild noted is the human body, because it's just not built to handle low-gravity conditions. We know fairly well at this point that prolonged periods in microgravity cause muscle disintegration and pooling of blood and other gross stuff, but some long-term missions have also witnessed loss of astronaut cognitive abilities. Could you imagine astronauts landing on Mars and not being able to think clearly? Or even having permanent damage to their eyesight or their heart or anything like that? Yeah, it sounds like a disaster waiting to happen.
2: These issues are obviously less of a concern if the duration of a space journey is short, like a week or eight days, which, by the way, was the case for the Apollo missions. Human physiology can totally keep up with that and recover quickly. It's when we're talking about months and years of continuous space travel that we need to start being concerned about our bodily limitations.
1: So these are the two major factors that Dr. Rothschild identified. Her work can be said to apply to the first one. And to introduce her background and the rationale for that work, let's hear from Dr. Rothschild directly.
3: My specialty is microbes, so I would focus less on the challenges for humans and more on the issue of of how can we do this with the knowledge that that fighting gravity is very expensive, and so for able to live off the land or or bring low mass objects with us that can then grow. Uh, that's ideal. And for that, I believe a lot of the answer lies in biology. I mean, you think about it. If you hold a little tiny acorn in your hand, it's a lot easier than holding a whole oak tree in your hand. We have the potential, we are living organisms, of growing from single cells into large, complicated structures. And so all you need is the food to turn into the large, complicated structure because we've got the information there. And then if you add some of the newer techniques and In biology, synthetic biology, for example, you can do even cooler things.
2: Dr. Rothschild is an evolutionary biologist by training, and she's inspired by the diversity of organisms that have evolved over the last 4 billion years. But synthetic biology, or Synbio, lets you look beyond what already exists and examine what's possible. We've talked about Synbio plenty on the show before, but in case you're a first timer, a great example of synthetic biology in today's world is how we use microorganisms to produce insulin for diabetics.
0: Nature has created its own sort of hardware store of functions and capabilities, so we can take a capability that we want off the shelf and put it into an organism that's suited to do the job that we need. And by the way, we've got to give credit to our guest today for that awesome analogy, which we think makes the point quite well.
1: So the idea here is that we can take nature and use it to help solve problems or accomplish goals. And, you know, with challenges as big as the ones we have in space exploration, we need all the tips, tricks, and tools we can get. Actually, check out our social media accounts next week for an episode extra on how SynBio could be used to create new forms of life that are better able to survive on other planets. But for our purposes today, some of Dr. Rothschild's work examines ways that we can use filamentous fungi, the complicated
2: structure that mushrooms form underground, to make physical structures. By the way, before we talk about physical structures, you can think of the underground fungal network that Aubrey just mentioned as the fungal roots, since the mushroom above ground is just the fruity body of the organism. It turns out that you can take a bit of these fungal roots, if you will, and put them in a mold. Here's Dr. Rothschild with what happens next.
3: So say you have something the shape of a Okay, just something silly, like a cup. And you put the, the, the some filaments in, and then you give it something to eat. And fungi are really good at eating anything, basically. So, say you put in some lawn scraps and grass clippings, or maybe your coffee grounds, or, or whatever. And you seal it up, and you let the filaments fill it. So, you're now talking about filaments that sort of look like um, grayish, brownish cotton. And they fill this this cup mold... And then when they've completely filled it, you can take off the cup, you can bake it, and you can end up with something in the shape of a cup.
0: That's legitimately the craziest thing I've ever heard. It gets even more interesting. She said that her students
2: used this method to make a stool. It's not huge or anything, but you can definitely sit on it, and it's fairly lightweight, which, again, is beneficial if you're trying to reduce the mass of the stuff you're bringing with you to space in the first place.
0: But it wouldn't even matter if it was lightweight. What if you just need to bring a handful of the starter filaments with you in the rocket, and once you land, those filaments could eat something from the surface of the planet you're traveling to? You can make a stool once you get there. Locally sourced stools on Mars. I like it. <laughs> well, we're only talking about a stool to continue the example. You could theoretically create a whole bunch of space sourced stuff, if, of course, you designed a fungus that eats the planet's soil, for lack of better terms. For instance, you could think
1: about constructing an entire habitat. Because in case you missed it, this isn't a galaxy far, far away. This isn't Star Wars, and we can't just exist on the surface of another planet the way we do here on Earth. We actually have to figure some things out. Kind of like
2: Matt Damon's character in The Martian. Dr. Rothschild's vision is creating igloo-shaped structures out of a filamentous fungi. Imagine blowing up a double-layered bag, like a pop-up tent, and letting the filaments grow between the layers. And voila, you have the shell of a habitat that you can grow on site in whatever location you want.
0: And not to get too off topic, but this revolutionary way of creating structures can even be useful here on Earth. For example, an architect friend of Dr. Roschild has been advocating for using this approach in disaster relief efforts. Think about it, you could have first responders out in the field and they pop up a fungal structure on site and then use it to protect medications or supplies.
1: Or maybe there's an earthquake and tons of people have been displaced, they need shelter. You could build these structures for temporary housing pretty quickly.
2: Just to get a little interdisciplinary here, the structures are basically just dried mushrooms, so they're totally biodegradable when you're done with them.
1: Leave it to Cleo to point
2: that out, but all jokes aside, that is a great point. Okay, so getting fungi to eat what's found on the surface of another planet is one thing. And it sounds like it's an interesting tool to create habitat, but we'd need other tools too, right? Howard Wallowitz's space toilet comes to mind. You know, Big Bang Theory's resident astronaut who journeys to the International Space Station to install a receptacle for human waste. <laughs> okay, point taken. But instead of space toilets,
1: why don't we talk about medicine? Think of astronauts going on a journey to another planet and needing to take care of their health. Let's let Dr. Rothschild explain the concept of an astropharmacy.
3: Basically the issue is that you don't have pharmacies open twenty-four seven on the surface of the moon or Mars or any other place. You know, you obviously have to bring your drugs with you. But you've got two issues there. One is you can't possibly bring every drug that you might need. There is an astronaut first aid med kit. You can find it online with a hundred or so drugs but that's not going to be everything you could possibly ever need. And treatments change. But worse than that is many of these things will eventually degrade. So, again, fine if you're just going to go on an Apollo-style mission or a few months even on ISS. But if you're going to have a -a two-and-a-half-year-round trip or longer, you need to increase the stability. And so what we've been researching is the ability to make – very tiny amounts of drugs, so just enough for maybe one or two astronauts, on demand very quickly from precursors that are stable for long periods of time, preferably at room temperature. And so that's a real challenge, but you can immediately think of uses on the Earth as well. People who live in remote areas, for example, who don't have access to drugs, potentially animals too in remote areas that could, you know, therefore be applications for someone who's in a submarine for a long duration employment or um, maybe in the Antarctic stations overwintering and don't have access.
0: What a cool idea. And it's fascinating because it's the complete opposite of how the pharmaceutical industry thinks about making drugs. So while pharma companies seek to make large quantities of highly profitable drugs, Dr. Rothschild's team is interested in making small quantities of whatever drug is needed in the moment. And with that second case study
2: in the books, let's take a quick break before diving into the importance of interdisciplinarity in space exploration, as well as ethical considerations and the policy environment.
0: Stay tuned.
1: Are you a high school science teacher interested in using our podcasts in the classroom? We've got you covered. The Forum is proud to offer podcast-based educator resources consisting of comprehension questions, activities, and lab assignments to facilitate student engagement and learning. These packets, covering topics like climate change, solar energy, and synthetic biology, are free to download at our website, isgpforum.org. Happy teaching!
0: Welcome back everyone to the forum's discussion on space exploration. Before the break, we were discussing some of the science and technology tools that exist to address major challenges in this area, like the need for habitat and medicine. Because of the vast number of things we need to make visiting other planets a reality, it makes sense that we need expertise from many different disciplines here. We've already discussed a need for expertise
2: in synthetic biology and even molecular biology, but there are obvious needs for geology, atmospheric chemistry, engineering, and architecture, too. I mean, think of all the questions you need answered. How will you construct your habitat? Will the material be fireproof? What are the structural components? Eh, with that last
1: question, though, if Earth's gravity can handle it, it'll be fine off-planet because you've got so much less gravity to deal with.
2: True, but the point there is that there are a lot of things to think about, including ethical considerations, even.
1: Actually, Dr. Rothschild noted the extreme importance of ethics when it comes to space exploration. Consider the need for planetary protection. In fact, we actually have international protocols in place that aim to protect other planets from us, as well as protect us from other planets. You know, in case there ends up being life elsewhere.
0: And yes, this applied to the moon back at the time of Apollo 11, too. Actually, because of a concern that there might be microbes on the moon, the Apollo 11 astronauts were quarantined for a bit after they got back home. Of course, we know now that there's no life on the moon, but there are definitely places we're still interested in going to where that's still an open question. Because of this,
2: it's important to have international agreements dictating best practices for interacting with other planets. Here's Dr. Rothschild with more.
3: So, to me as a scientist, the greatest tragedy would be if there was a, a separate life form on Mars. So it, and that second example of life. And we went there without thinking and destroyed it. So we destroyed our potential for even figuring out what this form might have been like. And conversely, I don't think the chance is very good, but there's always a chance that if there was life there, that for some reason it could be harmful to life on Earth. And so that's why it's extremely important to follow these agreed-upon protocols when you're going to places that could possibly harbor life.
2: Um, yes. If it turns out that Baby Yoda does, in fact, exist on another planet and we accidentally wiped out that species, I'd never forgive those astronauts. (laughs) Honestly, I think all of internet-using society would agree with you. It's really the giant eyes and ears, you know? Oh yes, I know. (laughs) It's the reason bunnies are so adorable. But in any case, I just want
1: to make sure everyone understands that this is actually a real concern. While we're probably talking more microbe-style life and less about Baby Yoda or War of the Worlds, there are actually a whole bunch of planetary bodies that could harbor some type of life, or may have in the past. Dr. Rothschild noted a handful in our own solar system.
0: These include, for example, Ceres the largest object in the asteroid belt. There's also Mars, at least one moon of Jupiter. That'd be Europa, which is covered in ice. Right, then there's two moons of Saturn,
2: like Titan, which has water and organic carbon.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, even Pluto is a possibility. It feels like every two or three years, there's another entity in our own solar system that gets jotted down on the list of possibilities. The implication, then, is that if anyone
2: is considering traveling to one of these places, a planetary protection protocol is needed.
1: These agreements stem from the 1967 United Nations Treaty on Principles Governing the Activity of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies. And yes, that is the whole name, so people usually just call it the Outer Space Treaty. Thank you, people, for creating that shorter name. It formally states that signatories can only use space for peaceful purposes and that nations can't claim sovereignty over planets, moons, and related space objects.
0: It also stipulates that space exploration needs to be conducted in a way that avoids harmful contamination. And in case you're wondering how individual planetary protection protocols are developed, it's the job of the Committee on Space Research, or COSAR which is part of the International Council of Science, which then consults with the UN. Once a planetary protection policy is established,
2: countries are responsible for ensuring that anyone from their country abides. So, for example, in the US, it's not just NASA that needs to follow these rules, but so does Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and anyone else standing up their own space exploration program.
1: But do they? Will they? How effective are these planetary protection policies? Here's Dr. Rothschild.
3: The concern I have is that it's unenforceable. I mean, what would happen if some rogue country, maybe it's one that didn't even sign the treaty, or maybe, you know, a rogue individual or whatever decides to crash a terrarium of organisms on the surface of Mars? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to really start a war over it? Are you going to try to put a country in jail? It's not it's not clear to me. So it's something that I think is extremely important. And I would hope that everyone abides by it. And so far they have. But it is sort of an awkward situation in that, and that I don't think that there is actual legal enforcement.
1: All right. So people have been abiding. That's good. But enforcement is questionable if and when someone doesn't abide. Then there's also the question of ownership.
3: I think that there are people who look to, for example, the treaties um, involved with the Antarctic as somewhat of a model system for, for looking at space. So the Antarctic is sort of partitioned into, you know, five or six different countries, but it's not really your land. It's not like the United States owns part of it that, you know, sends a representative to Congress or anything. And so I think that there has been some thought, you know, none of this is really completely clear legally and what the enforcement would be. So you have to think what would happen if someone, say, does crash an organism or decide to claim that um, a certain part of the moon or Mars or whatever was owned by them. I believe that Neil Armstrong, for example, very clearly said that he was doing what he did, stepping on the moon, on behalf of all of humanity. And I think that that, you know, this is my personal view, this is not necessarily NASA's policy, but I think that that is a, you know, a wonderful way to look at our resources off-planet.
0: Oof, I hadn't even thought about ownership, really. But applying the Antarctic method is an interesting and fairly well-tested idea there's also the laws of the sea and international waters concept that could be applied. But in the end, how decision makers around the world decide to rally around communal or non-communal space exploration remains to be determined. That seems like a pretty big
2: and important thing that needs to be figured out. But it also sounds like we still have some time. I mean, remember what we were talking about at the top of the episode? there's still a lot of work to be done here on Earth regarding habitats and medicines and, heck, even food before we can actually lift off with our rockets heading to Mars. It's kind
1: of interesting because I think a lot of people believe we're practically days away from a big Mars trip. And this might be because the pop culture world told us in 2013 that Justin Bieber booked a space flight, or because of the Mars One project that very publicly wants to put the first human colony on Mars. But...
0: Since we have a bona fide expert with us today, we decided to ask Dr. Rothschild what she feels is the one big thing we need to take the next major steps in space exploration. Her answer? Propulsion systems. Listen in.
3: If when I told you that a round trip to Mars was about six months to get there, and then to wait for the planets to realign for a short trip back, you're going to be there about a year and a half, and then it takes you another six months to get back. So we're talking about two and a half years of your life, You don't know what sort of loss of of muscle and um, long-term effects on your brain and your eyesight and so on might be. Would you do that? Would you come with me? I'm not sure I would go. Um, I'd have to think good and hard about that. I know there are people on planet Earth who would, but someone like me has got to think hard about it. Now, if I told you that we could do the whole thing and be back by next Thursday, would you go? I certainly would. So that suggests to me that some of some of the issue is the amount of time commitment and the concern about what it does in your body. And so if we had a way of literally jumping to Mars in two days and back, I mean, that would be a total game changer. I, I guess I can say it because I already said this on a radio show years ago, but if you're going. For sort of an eight-day trip, an Apollo sort of mission, you could literally pack peanut butter sandwiches, and that would be fine. But you cannot possibly pack enough peanut butter sandwiches to get yourself to Mars back with two and a half years there. So that's when you have to start thinking about habitat and food and clothing and psychological stress and all these other things that play. And these are some of the things that again we're focusing on as we. Go from, first of all, these very quick trips to the moon to longer-duration stays, and then secondarily going forward to places like Mars, which are going to be a much longer trip.
1: Would you go with her? <sighs> um, An eight-day trip to Mars. I would strongly consider it. Eight days is like a vacation, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I would absolutely not do it. I am never leaving this planet.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, completely different answers. I'm somewhat more on the fence. Part of me would love to go to Mars, but also kind of scared of what could be out there that we just don't know about
2: yet. So at this point, it's time that we start wrapping up. And I think it'd be nice to end full circle by looping back to how we started this episode, with a few last comments on why we want to be exploring space in the first place. I mean, be honest, have you ever wondered why we spend money on space research when we have all kinds of problems to solve here on Earth? You definitely wouldn't be alone,
1: but you'll notice that throughout today's episode, we've peppered in examples of how the technologies being explored for space could also be useful here at home, like the fungal habitats for disaster relief or finding new ways to produce small amounts of medicine on demand.
0: So why don't we just fund those projects directly, without the space angle?
1: Well, there's really no economic incentive to do so, right? I mean, there's no economic incentive for drug companies to help out with producing orphan drugs. If there was, there'd
2: be no orphan drugs to begin with.
1: Exactly, Cleo. That's exactly it. Dr. Rothschild explained that when you're dealing with space, a place where there's literally no existing industry or investors to compete with, we can come up with game-changing solutions that could eventually spin off here on Earth. A quick shout-out to my friend Jess, by the way, who's trying to develop better solar panel materials in space with the help of microgravity.
2: You go, Jess. (laughs) But even more importantly, Dr. Rothschild thinks it's critical to keep pushing forward with space exploration because it keeps us inspired. Here's our last clip of the day.
3: Being explorers is something that's part of our nature. We are not, as human beings, well-fed cows. I like to tell people about when I was in Africa for a field trip once, and I went into a school in the uh, outskirts of Nairobi, which was literally in a swamp. I mean, two-thirds of the kids were orphans. These kids came in to talk about planets and life and so on on a day that wasn't even um, a school day. It was a holiday. And the excitement in their eyes, and these kids from the point of view of us in the materialistic West had nothing. But these kids were really psyched about this. And I think the reason is, is that we all want to participate in the greatest achievements that humans have produced. It's not an either-or. We as humans are, are curious about the world around us. We're explorers. We're naturally scientists. And to say that we are well-fed cows, and once we're all well-fed cows, we can think about these other things. Is, is crazy it's it's a totally false dichotomy we need both and that's why you don't stop on space exploration it's going to keep us going and excited now of course there are also technical reasons where you know we could talk about other implications but i I did want to leave with that thought that that it's not an either or but that it's part of our humanity really to do these sorts of things
0: and with that We hope this episode has proven a bit inspiring to you. Conversations about space exploration are always exciting, and we hope you've learned a bit about some of the cutting-edge research that's going on to make far-space journeys a reality in the future.
1: Today on the forum, we discussed the reasons for exploring space in the first place, what technologies are being developed to help, the ethical concerns associated with space travel, and how international policies play a critical role.
2: Which of the research projects we mentioned excited you most? Do you think there's real potential for dual use of these technologies, both out in space and here on Earth?
0: And would you be interested in a trip to Mars if it were only eight days long? Hit us up
2: on Twitter and Instagram at ISGP Forum or on Facebook at facebook.com ISGPforum to let us know.
1: Thank you to NASA's own Dr. Rothschild for joining us today, and thank you all for listening. We'll catch you back here in two weeks' time for another brand new episode right here on The Forum. The Forum is sponsored by the Institute on Science for Global Policy, or ISGP,
0: an international think tank that has no opinions and does not lobby. Any views expressed in the preceding podcast are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by ISGP. Podcast theme music is provided by Steve Combs and Lee Rosevear.
1: For more information on the forum and its programs, please visit our website at isgpforum.org.